This is one of my favorite times of year, and it's not just because it's Christmas time, uh, but because of all this means to us and what Christ has done for us. And it's an incredibly important time. Now, I'm going to ask, having said that, I'm going to ask a pretty predictable congregational response question today. I'm pretty sure I already know the answer, but just in case, for those of you who listen to the radio, have you noticed that once again, 93.7 has started playing their Christmas music early again this year? How many have noticed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I think they actually began in October. Having worked in retail 11 years, I've had kind of an ironclad rule in my family that I can no longer control because there in San Antonio, uh, Christmas music was after Thanksgiving. Now, I love Christmas music. I really do. Well, some of it anyway. Uh, but I kind of think we should wait at least till after Thanksgiving and, and not let it become something trivial for us. Uh, it, we should be singing other songs in October than Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Having said that, our emphasis in Advent this year is going to be focused on songs. Now, it's not going to be Santa Claus's Coming to Town or uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, but it's also, no, it's not going to be The Grandma Got Run Over. Uh, We're not even going to be focusing on traditional Christmas hymns as such. Instead, this year, we're going to be looking all the way through Advent the fourth Sunday of Advent, we are going to be looking at Israel's hymn book. We're going to be looking at the book of Psalms. This is the official beginning of Advent today, the Advent season. Uh, Advent traditionally starts between the 27th of November and December 3rd, the Sunday that falls between. Well, we didn't have a Sunday between them this year, so we're starting off on December 3, and there are churches all over the world, across denominational lines, that will be sharing in a time of expectation, a time of reflection, a time even of repentance, a time looking at the promises of God. And so we'll be looking at the songs of Israel that reveal the different themes that we put emphasis on during the season of Advent. And since this is the the Sunday of hope, it would be very fair for you to assume that today's song is going to be filled with amazing, wonderful praise and an upbeat, highest wonder. But I've been told many times in my life, you shouldn't assume anything. John Durham, talking about Psalm 80, has pointed out it is a lament song of the community of worship in a time of crisis. Now that word um, lament, sometimes it's translated a complaint song. Yes, there are songs in the book of Psalms that complain that God somehow is not doing what he ought to do. This particular moment of crisis most likely happened just before the northern kingdom of Israel fell or after its fall. And as Durham points out, the land is being overrun The enemy of God's people are laughing about it. And God's people feel his absence so keenly that they even think their prayers might be an irritant to him. 
that somehow he's not even going to be happy with their prayers. And so we come to a song of lament. And you probably would not expect a song of complaint to start the season of Advent. Particularly since Advent begins traditionally with the concept of hope. It's like it's like a, a Christmas carol that maybe the Grinch would sing. That maybe he would be all for it before his heart grew. It's not what you would expect to hear. It's not, I mean, who wants to hear Merry Christmas, everything stinks. We might not want to hear it. But I believe we need to hear it nevertheless. So please rise as the word is read. We'll be looking at Psalm 80, verses 1 through 7 and 17 through 19. These are the verses that will be at least read in worship services across the world. They might not be preached at. But this is the Advent selection. Hear the word of the Lord carefully. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears. And given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors. And our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God, of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. But let your hand be on the the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This song of lament actually looks back into a time of Israel's history that was glorious. Things were wonderful. They could easily see that God was shepherding his people. God was providing for his people that which they need. But now it shifts to what was happening at that present time of calamity. Most likely, again, the names that are mentioned at the first of the text suggest that this might well be a song about the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the psalm wonders that there's even going to be a future because God, you're not listening and we need you desperately to hear. In this psalm that is looking at a time of uncertainty that was facing God's people, the psalmist led the way for the people of God to call out to God in the time of their fear and uncertainty. You may have noticed there's a threefold refrain in this psalm. In verses 3, 7, and 19, we hear, Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. And that is a positive note. But at the beginning of the text, and even in the middle of the text, it is also a cry, God, shine on us because you're not. Restore us because you're not. 
So as we look at our text today, from our own perspective, we are living in an uncertain world. War, not just in one locale, but throughout our world. Violence and hate abounding in ways that we would wish were not so struggle. But in that time, we can learn to call out to the one who can restore his people. Just as the psalmist, it's attributed to Asaph, a leader of the worship of, of Israel, we are reminded that in a time like that, we need to be calling out to God. And we're going to take a close look at this text, and I want you to really listen. You know how... Have you ever wondered why I tell you to listen with both ears? Because I used to use the phrase, in one ear and out the other. But sometimes I fear we don't even let it get in at all. So today I need you to listen carefully to what this song is saying about the time of need. And so we begin by looking. Restore us, O Lord. We begin with this psalm. Hear a cry for rescue. I want you to hear a cry for rescue. Because it looks like everything is done. It looks like there is no hope whatsoever. And as Asaph is leading the people to sing, the psalmist cried out to the shepherd of Israel to come to the aid of the people of the covenant. You are the shepherd. In Psalm 23, one of the best-known psalms of all times, David declared, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, the psalmist is saying, shepherd, you have shepherded your people, now come to help them. Because in their mind, in his eyes, instead of helping them, God had caused them pain. He wasn't listening to their cries. In fact, there's a suggestion that God is angry every time his people pray. He made them cry out in their pain. He's not listening. He allowed them to be overrun and he allows them to be ridiculed before their enemies. What we see here is essentially a cry, God, do something. We need you to move. Do something. We cannot see your hand anymore. In the first few verses, I want you to notice one other aspect of this. There is no indication given in this psalm that the people of Israel themselves might have something to do with their circumstance. There's no statement, Lord, we've sinned and we've fallen and we need you to restore us. There's no, all we can see is you aren't listening. We need you to hear us. We need you to look at us. If the text is speaking about the fall of the northern kingdom, as most believe, then the reality of the situation must be faced. And at this point, they're not quite ready. Israel has fallen because Israel refused to hear the cries of the prophets that God sent to her, calling her to repent. She's not listening. And Israel's leaders, by the way, if you know much about the, the history of the word of God, none of the kings of the northern kingdom were good. They were all bad. Judah had a few good ones, even had a couple of great ones. But Israel, all of their leaders led the people into idolatry, 
led the people into sinfulness, led the people into all sorts of horrible things. There are no good leaders. They led them further and further away from God. So the circumstance, we are hurting. You don't hear us. You're not listening. We need you to turn. He's not really acknowledging. At this point, God forgive us. It's God, you need to do something. And folks, you and I, we are standing in a time when we need to see the hand of God's restoration move among his people. We need to see God moving to restore his people to the place they should be. We need to see God's hand upon our lives individually and corporately so that we can see God's will and purpose come about in our own lives. You may or may not be aware the commitment levels have been on the decline for a while. A Gallup poll that was taken recently have polled Americans on their view of the literal interpretation of the Bible. They've been doing these polls all the way back to 1976. The latest poll, the most recent, reveals a record low. Now folks, right now I'm going to tell you what Christians have said. Earlier in those polls, the majority of people who identified as Christians said that they believed the Bible was literally true. It was literally the word of God. And now, among Christian adults, about 25% will say with a great deal of of certainty, I believe that the word of God is literally the word of God. 58%, a significant number, say that they at least believe at some level it is the inspired word of God. But they're not quite certain about certain passages of scripture. But there are 16% of people who identify, I am a person of faith. 16% who look at our Bible and say, it's a bunch of fables. You have to look for the message, but stories about giants and miracles and all that kind of stuff. And it's, they're, they're all images. Attendance has been a problem as well. And it became a real problem for churches across the world during the time of COVID. But as COVID was moving away, a lot of churches were doing as we did, posting messages online uh, and continue to do so after the churches opened. But according to Gallup, 57% of Christians right now are not attending church either in person or online. There are some that choose online instead of in person, some who choose in person instead of online, but somewhere about 57% of people who profess to be believers have kind of just left church out of their lives. And this is not a general population. This is about people who at one time in their lives pretty much typically attended churches on a monthly basis. Now it may be three Sundays out of uh, a month, and now the The big thing is uh, folks are considering themselves active members if they come once a month. But 
as a whole, people have kind of moved away. Now, I realize there are folks for whom the ox is in the ditch. There are people who work. I, I get that. I understand that. But we're talking across the board, over half of people who profess faith. With all of that, community trust in the church has started to decline. Now, across the board, Americans have become less confident in major institutions, period. Governments, news, banks, newspapers. Unfortunately, right now, I've, I've told you before, the fastest growing demographic on the census form that asks, what is your religious preference? For a, at least a decade now, the fastest growing number are those who say, none. I have no religious preference. And now, right now, according to the Gallup poll, only 31% of those surveyed report that they have a great deal or quite a good confidence in the church or organized religion. In other words, less than a third of the people in this country believe that what you are doing is good, not only for you, but for our world. Only 30%. And on that note, and this is painful to me, American, Americans are also more skeptical of pastors than in the past. It used to be, particularly here in the South, in the Bible Belt, uh, people might not go to church at all, but they had respect. Uh, for many decades, Billy Graham was one of the most respected men in this country. Those numbers have declined radically. Only 39% Americans rate clergy as having high or very high honesty and ethical standards. In fact, over, it's say over a third of people look at me and would say, I know what you're really about. You're in it for the money, you're in it for the power. Some of you did catch the joke. Uh, but we don't trust you. On the other hand, and this is good, I applaud this, nurses are rated at an 89%. That's great. Uh, medical doctors at 77%. Grade school teachers, 75%. So there are still people that this nation looks at, well, we trust them to some degree. But what I want to point out to you, when Jesus walked on this earth, do you notice how over and over again in the Gospels, people who were sinners... People who were ungodly wanted to be with him. They wanted him to come to their house to eat. They followed him. They wanted to hear truth. Now, they are turning away in droves from whatever light we might be able to shine. And so I believe that today, we, our local congregation here and the congregations across the West we, our heart cry should be a call for God to shine upon his people that they may, might become all they are meant to be. God, shine your light on us. God, restore us. We need to come back to what you meant for us to be all along. A cry for rescue for the people of God. We need an awakening. We need the hand of God to move in our lives and change us. And we cannot expect to affect a world if when they look at us, 
They do not see the love of Christ. So we've heard a cry for rescue. Next, I want to hear you to hear a frustrated desperation. A frustrated desperation. They are really at a point of just, God, you're not working. Now, an interesting thing about Advent readings, and the, the basic idea is that there are, are major points to be heard. The Advent reading for this day that is being read across the world leaves out a significant portion of this song. It leaves out verses 8 through 16. And we're, I want us, we're going to draw attention to it, and I want you to hear it, because it's very important. It, it is a sign of how bad the desperation has gotten. You see, the psalmist's desperation was told through a haunting metaphor. He does use an image. He referred to an earlier metaphor. Lord, you are the shepherd of Israel. Now he's going to use another agricultural image. And I want you to listen to these. He is going to use the metaphor of a vine. And in Israel, most likely a vine of, of grapes. Let's listen. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The, ba- the boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted And for the son whom you made strong for yourself, they have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. Now catch this. Understand this text. He's saying, you brought us out of Egypt. You planted us in the land of Canaan. And you allowed us to thrive. And your hand moved and lives were changed. And the kingdom of God grew. And our, our, our influence spread out upon the land. But then you broke down the wall. Then you allowed the invader to come. You allowed the Assyrians to move and destroy the kingdom. The vine that you planted, you have left. So the psalmist is saying, God, how long are you going to be angry at us? And again, there's no hint that we have done anything wrong. You just tore up the wall and let us be destroyed. He is essentially accusing God of deserting his people. You are deserting us, God. And the implication was terrifying. God, you walked away. And he essentially is asking, how can you not care 
You planted this vine. You nourished it. You gave it everything it needed and now you've walked away. And I believe, like Israel of old, the church is in a desperate time in her life. The trends I've mentioned are scary. They really are. And there's a lot of talk about what the church needs to do in order to regain a foothold. How do we need to to look at what the church might become here? It is scary. And the beginning of pushback that we are starting to experience, uh, the greater amount of ridicule, the greater amount of of, of shame blaming us for everything we can possibly... That is hurting when we have been a church that has basically been respected for a very long time in this country and no longer there. And the problem is that it would be very easy for us to take upon ourselves a victim mentality. A victim mentality that will, will corrupt and rob us from God's peace. That will rob us from the assurance that God does in fact love us, that God's strength is for us. And if we are not very careful, when we look at the condition of the world, if we allow fear to become overwhelming in our lives, it will cause us to forget who we are and whose we are. And basically, when you're afraid, you strike out. You attack the enemy. You start using the tactics of the enemy. And if that happens, we can find ourselves killing our effectiveness for the kingdom of God. Samantha Grossman, in July 16, 2014, published an online article for Time Magazine. And it told the story of a man, and and he was actually interviewed on the local ABC affiliate, but it told the story of a man who found a spider in his laundry room. And he apparently was one of those people who are deathly afraid of spiders. I will not ask for a show of hands because I'm pretty certain we've got people here. So his decision, how he was going to handle it, he grabbed a can of spray paint and a lighter And he made a makeshift flamethrower. And he was going to kill that spider. Firefighters eventually arrived at the scene. And the fire that he caused, caused a significant damage. It was estimated it was going to take $40,000 to repair the house. And another $20,000 to repair or replace the items inside. And this is where I am absolutely certain that I would love to meet Samantha Grossman. Her humor resonates with me completely. She wrote, you're probably thinking, well, at least the fire must have killed the spider. (laughs) Ha ha ha! But no. Nobody can confirm if the spider survived or not. So basically, this spider could have gotten out alive, then watched the house burn from the safety of a nearby tree, probably petting a white cat and laughing maniacally. That's what fear can do to you. And that's what can happen if we allow our fear and our desperation to make us cause more harm 
harm than good in this world. So we must let our desperation turn us to God and not away from him. Yes, the world is scary. There are a lot of things happening that cause us a sense of dread, but we can't let us let that make us lose sight of God. Phil McHugh wrote, and Steve Green sang an anthem that needs to gather our heart's attention and commitment. It points us to the one who is bigger than our fear. God and God alone created all these things we call our own. From the mighty to the small, the glory in them all is God's and God's alone. God and God alone reveals the truth of all we call unknown. And the best and worst of man won't change the master's plan. It's God's and God's alone. God and God alone is fit to take the universe's throne. Let everything that lives reserve its truest praise for God and God alone. God and God alone will be the joy of our eternal home. He will be our one desire. Our hearts will never tire of God and God alone. God and God alone is fit to take the universe's throne. Let everything that lives reserve its truest praise for God and God alone. This frustrated desperation we must allow it to drive us to our Lord. The God alone who can rescue and not send us away from him. And finally, I want you to hear a declaration of hope. Because at the end of the psalm, the psalmist seems to come to terms with what is happening. For finally, the psalmist seemed to focus on the whole reality facing his people. There is a change of tone beginning in verse 7. And that change of tone begins what is called an adversative conjunction. That's a linking word that says this was this and this is this now. And that word it's a word that I know a lot of our ladies like because I've seen your t-shirts, but. I've seen your shirts that cry, but God. And the psalmist understands. Listen to the first part of, uh, listen to verse 17. After he said, you're angered at our prayers, you're not listening, you need to do something about this vine, he says, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Folks, it is virtually impossible for us to read this text and not think of whom? Jesus. Son of man was his favorite word of self-description when he walked in Galilee and Judea. Many people believe, and I'm one of them, that this psalm has a messianic implication. The fact that it is included in an Advent reading that is looking toward the promised coming one, it indicates how prevalent the idea 
is that the, the son of the right hand, the son of man, is none other than Messiah. You see, the psalmist was looking forward today when God's right hand man would set things right. And here's the key. This is why I believe his understanding changes. And his last, shine on us, restore on us, has a different tone as well. Did you notice, he says, when this happens, when you strengthen the man of your right hand, when the Son of Man has come, then we will not turn back from you. It's like a light bulb goes off if there were light bulbs, a candle flame. The reason we've fallen is that we've turned away from you. We quit calling on your name in faith. We turn our backs to everything you said we needed to be. And now we are feeling the consequence of those actions. So he comes and he he understands and he says, we are going to follow you completely. Move in us now. Restore us. Now it's not just restore our wealth and restore our safety. Restore us so that we may follow you completely. Now he understands our hope needs to be in the one who can give us hope. So he's now saying, instead of, Lord, you got to do something, you got to change the way you're acting toward us. He's saying, Lord, help us change the way we are responding to you. Make us into what we want to be, what you want us to be. And in that hope, they would trust. God, restore us. Let your light shine. Restore us and save us. By the way, some of you who are very acute at things might have recognized there's an allusion in this psalm to Aaron's benediction. Lord, lift up your face upon us. Let it shine upon us and give us peace. He's saying, we want to trust you, Lord. And I believe at this point, the church in the West needs to understand our need to come back to God. I am not trying to suggest that everything that's bad happening in this world has a direct correlation to our sin. I'm not saying that we have caused every bad thing that happens because we haven't trusted God. And I suggest, so that you know, not everything that bad happens is punishment. I suggest you read the book of Job and find that I actually know what I'm talking about. But the church in this country seems to have lost sight of our God. How do I know this? Because I watch what happens after elections and when our candidates don't win. I've watched what happens when we find ourselves being pushed back from culture And how instead of in loving them more and praying for them and weeping for them and trying to share with them, we push back at their pushback. 
I see this because when God has not spared us from trouble in general, (laughs) there's no easy way to put this. We throw tantrums. God, this isn't what you promised me when I signed up. If we're not careful, we will be crying out, why aren't you listening, God? And our fear and our devastation will cause us to doubt the very goodness of God, which, by the way, is the exact temptation the serpent used on Eve. Did God really say you'd die? And he was calling into question the goodness of God. And she fell for it. And when things don't go exactly the way we want, sometimes we begin to doubt God's goodness. We begin to doubt God's love. We begin to doubt His commitment to us. And maybe, I'm just suggesting this is a good place for us to start as the church in the West. Maybe we need to take a clue from David. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, am I the man you created and redeemed me to be? Or am I holding back from you? I need you to move in my heart. I need you to show me what is keeping the church from being the church she's called to be. And folks, it isn't persecution. When we complain about being persecuted, I, I want to share with you the nations in this world where the deepest, most hateful persecution are taking place are some of the places where the church is absolutely its strongest. And they are standing for Christ. In the first century, persecution began. Then moving into the second and third century, it hit its height. And a man by the name of Tertullian, an old saint of God, wrote to the Roman government. He said, you need to leave us alone. First of all, all those things you've been saying about us are lies. But you need to understand, when you kill us, you make us stronger. Because the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. Folks, we may be in a moment of not seeing the hand of God move because we are not yet ready to say, God, save me. From myself. Help us. Become what you want us to be. At this point we need to understand our need to come back to God. We need to understand this. I love spirituals that don't tend to get sung much in church anymore. But I remember one that was resurrected for my youth choir. Ain't my brother or my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And I need to know that I am standing in the need of prayer.
we need to know, God, you are God above, God and God alone, and you are on the throne, and you can move, and you can make a difference, and you can give us hope, but we need to give our hearts to you without hesitation. So we must yield ourselves to the promised Son of Man who alone can bring us hope in this time of struggle. And folks, I'm not saying this because I'm a preacher. I'm saying it because it's the conviction of my heart. Christ alone can bring the restoration that is needed here. See, our hope will not be based on anything the world has to offer. Gimmicks. Friends, whatever it may be, the world isn't going to settle what's happening here. Our hope will not be based upon our own ability to make things better. Uh, perhaps you have had that moment in time when you've tried to fix something and then realized that you really should have called a professional. We're trying to plug a leak we can't plug. Our hope is to be found in God. And one of the greatest statements of faith in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 20, I want you to listen to verses 7 through 9. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Some people will trust in everything the world says will fix the problem. But we, we want to trust in God. And if that happens, we can see the hand of God move. If we come to a place of saying in our hearts, restore us, God. Move in us. Change us then our fears, I'm not saying the problems that cause fear will simply disappear, but our fears will not rule over us, and we will have hope. Hope is powerful. Perhaps it's the most powerful thing that we have, and sometimes it's all we have. January of 2010, a 7.0 magnitude earthquake struck the island of Haiti, it destroyed buildings and killed or maimed tens of thousands of people. And the hope of finding survivors, as it often does in those horrible situations, began to fade. They discovered a survivor in the wreckage of a hotel grocery store. And the fact that they determined there is someone still alive renewed the commitment we need to keep looking. The man was eventually saved on Sunday when a, a small little petite worker, Carmen Mikoska from Aberdeen, managed to crawl into the tomb-like space where 24-year-old Haitian Wismund Exantis was trapped. When the rescuers pulled Exantis from the rubble, it was 11 full days since the earthquake. He told reporters from his hospital bed that the first thing he wanted to do was find a church to give thanks. He told them that he spent time, you know, in God's providence, he was trapped 
in a grocery store. He had not access to all of the food, but the food he needed and liquid to, to help him survive. And he said he spent his time praying, reciting psalms, and sleeping. We're in a time of uncertainty. We're in a time of desperation. And we need to remember hope is ours. Not because we deserve it. Get rid of your idea that I'm special and I deserve hope. Understand, hope is ours because God Almighty has declared us to be his own. So yes, we are special, but it's none of our doing, it's his. We are his children. We need to pray. God, convict the church in this land when we stray away from what you have called us to be. We need to pray for the church at large. It stands in need of awakening. We need to pray for our congregation and our individual lives. Lord, on this day of hope, we're asking you to give us hope and that you will help us to commit to following you. Even if things aren't going our way. Help us to find ways to follow you. And I believe by his grace, his strength, his hope, we can begin to follow the hope that is ours. We can follow and not turn back. On this Sunday of hope, when we remember that God is our hope.